What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. This program, unique, up and down the dial, you're not going to hear anything like it, a program on a Catholic network for non-Catholics. How about that? If you've got a question about the Catholic faith, maybe you're not quite sure what the Catholic faith teaches about, oh, I don't know, infant baptism? Yes, we have a standpoint on that. We'll be glad to fill you in, and here's the phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. If you're listening to us outside the U.S. and Canada, please dial the number 1 and then 205-271-2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky, our phone screener. Jeff Burson is on social media. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, We are streaming there right now, live. I'm looking at you. I'm waving. All you have to do is uh, put your question in the comments box. Jeff will see that. He'll send it to us here in the studio. Hopefully, we can get it answered on today's program. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Andrews. Tom, how are you today? You know, I'm doing very well, and I was just thinking it's been a long time since we've had a lunch update. You know, for this for the past year, I've just been boring as dirt because all I've eaten is lentils, <laughs> and uh, I've gotten into a kind of a uh, you know I've gotten into a habit, and I make a just a mean batch of lentils, I eat that with a piece of flatbread and usually a piece of fruit, and I'm good to go. Sounds awfully good. You well, know, it's some, fantastic. Some people would call that being in a rut. I think it's it's kinder to say in a groove. You're in a groove, isn't I'm that a, better? I'm in a groove, yeah. It, it's a, a good groove. groove. We're going to lead off with this question from Judy, who posed it yesterday on Facebook, but we just ran out of time, couldn't get to it. Judy, I hope you're listening to us today. Here is your question. Why did Catholics persecute the Anabaptists? I have heard that Catholics have quite a history of this, but I would like to read a resource on exactly what happened and why. Thanks, Judy. Okay, thanks. So uh, I'm not going to let Catholics off the hook, but I want to point out that everybody persecuted the Anabaptists <laughs> in the 16th century. Okay. One of John Calvin, Protestant theologians, most infamous, infamous moments, of course, was when he had, uh, conceded to burning Servetus at the stake in in, uh, in Geneva for his Ugh. radical theology. So wow. I mean, there there was there was no uh, no uh, no small measure of persecution of Anabaptists going mm. around. They weren't safe anywhere. And the, there are a lot of reasons why, but the, the major difference you have to understand between the Middle Ages and early modernity and today is that even though the Catholic Church believes that the institution of the church is different from the institution of the state, mm. so it doesn't believe in a state church the way a lot of Protestants do, and Calvinists also don't believe in a state church in quite the same respect, although many Protestants do, um, Christian identity was very much linked to uh, the civic order, right? So the view of kingship and government was that the same God that ordained, uh, established the institution of the church, that very same God established the institution of the government. And baptism of infants uh, was, you know, sort of like getting a social security card. I mean, you were, you were, you became a member of the church, but it also 
major member of Christendom, major member of the of the civil order of a Christianized Europe. And so Anabaptists believed, first of all, they, they rejected infant baptism. And so the status of adult unbaptized people who were not Jews, right? Uh-huh. I mean, this was a radically new thing in, in medieval and early modern Europe, and it threw their conception of the social order out of whack. Um, uh, similarly, uh, Anabaptists taught that you couldn't, that Christians couldn't serve in civil government. And so their attitude towards the church, towards baptism, and towards the government, the military, was viewed by everyone as anarchical. You know, it'd be like saying we don't accept the Constitution of the United States or the judiciary or the presidency. Or I mean, like, I know Anabaptists don't say that today, but I mean, the, the view would be this would be a very socially radical position. How can you have a civil society if you don't have Christians willing to serve in positions of civil government? Mm, yeah. And, of course, the Anabaptist response to that is they thought that Christians were, that their kind of Christians would necessarily be a minority in any civil order. That's a very different vision of society from one that says, you know, the society ought to be Christianized and governed by Christian principles. So two very different political views about the way humans ought to conduct themselves that came into conflict. Um, and, uh, and so it's today, the Catholic Church recognizes you shouldn't persecute anybody for their religious beliefs yeah. um, without renouncing the idea that, say, Catholic social doctrine should still inform political discourse. And we hope that's helpful for you. Thanks for watching us on Facebook. Uh, I, I know I came in yesterday, but we were glad to get to it today. Here's a question now from Bob in Texas. Greetings to all. Please stay cool there. Well, it's you need to stay cool in Texas, Bob. I'm curious as to what Dr. Andrews thinks about G.K. Chesterton and his voluminous writings on the faith and much else as well. Dr. Andrews has spoken often of C.S. Lewis and referred to his writings frequently, but rarely has he mentioned this earlier English author who, by Lewis's own admission, was instrumental in Lewis's conversion to Christianity and seemingly influential upon his writings. Thanks, Bob in Texas. Thanks, I appreciate it. So I, I respect G.K. Chesterton. I have read a good bit of Chesterton. I've read Orthodoxy. Uh, you know, I've, I've read um, The Man Who Was Thursday. Uh-huh. I've read Chesterton on St. Thomas Aquinas. I've read Chesterton on St. Francis of Assisi and other things as well. haven't read too much of Father Brown but I know a lot of people love that. Oh, yeah. Um, I've read some essays by Chesterton. So, I I mean, I I appreciate the man's obvious gifts. And he was a tremendously talented writer. And in in my judgment, a a lot... How can I characterize him? Chesterton had a way with words where he used irony and paradox uh, by constructing absurd parallelisms and 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 uh, and antinomies you know he would say either this or that and he would make the dichotomies quite extreme uh-huh. and uh, and arresting and some and comical right and so he used these rhetorical tools these rhetorical tropes throughout his writing when you read him that you'll note that stylistic uh, that, that style and it's very attractive and it's compelling and it grabs your attention um, my own personal the reason I don't like Chesterton as much as Lewis is I, I, I felt like Chesterton, I don't mean this as a character flaw, but I think he was kind of in love with his own prose. Oh. Or in other words, he, he knew he had a talent and he really pushed it. And so I, sometimes I think the substance, in my judgment, uh, the nuances gets lost in the rhetoric. Um, and so I don't like him as much as I like C.S. Lewis. I do appreciate him, but that aspect of his writing... It was, you know, better for his journalism, I think, than his theology. Very good. Bob, thanks for writing to us. It's called a communion on this Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN. Stay with us.
It's called a communion on this Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN. If you have a question for uh, Dr. David Anders, we are here for you. The number is 833-288-EWTN for that question, 833-288-3986. Or maybe you'd like to explain what is stopping you, you, from becoming a Catholic. Again, 833-288-EWTN. Uh, a quick reminder here, you can carry EWTN with you everywhere when you download the free EWTN app. You can enjoy EWTN's live TV and radio streams, uh, audio and video on demand, EWTN news, program schedules, prayers, devotionals. The list is it's, it's long. It's a big list, and we're very glad to bring it to you uh, all packed into that little bitty app. Download the EWTN app now at EWTNapps.com for your uh, iPhone, your Android, EWTNapps.com. Do check it out. We're going to get to the phones in a moment here, and lines are still coming in right now at 833-288-EWTN. Uh, Barbara is checking in on Facebook. She says, my question for Dr. Andrews is, what does your family eat? Oh, they eat garbage. They garbage. eat trash. Yeah. So, so you know, when I, when I went on my, I'm going to go all out on health kick, they yeah. were like, oh, that's interesting. We'll give that a, a try. And that lasted about three days, you know, and then they went back to the, to the processed food and, you know, all the meats and cheeses and dairy products and sugar and, you know, I'm. And I and I have to buy it. I feel I feel a bit of a hypocrite. You know, I go. To, I'm the cook too, so I'll yeah. go to the store and I'll buy a bag of lentils for me, and then it's like you know, steak for everybody else, or you know, <laughs> hamburger or whatever. And I even believe it or not, I even have to hold my nose and buy ice cream sometimes. Oh my! You know, so they uh. eat whatever they want to eat. Except I have one son that well, some some of my kids will eat whatever I cook, healthy or not. Yeah. Some won't, and then one who uh, who likes to follow me more or less in the healthy food direction but there it's a continuum i'm really a short order chef at home got it like what do you want what do you want what do you want foo 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 and there we go there you go barbara glad we could answer that quick question for you here before we get to the meat of the program which is uh our phone calls at 833-288-EWTN we're kicking off today with lou in st louis listening online ewtn.com hey there lou what's on your mind today sir hi um uh, this is about um the main points of the church's view on the Eucharist. Uh, we're right now in uh, the church is in um, a period of uh, Eucharistic revival, and there's going to be a, a big Eucharistic Congress uh, in the middle of July next year mm-hmm. at the football stadium in uh, Indianapolis. And um, also, there's there's a great book um, booklet like um, by Father Baron Ermanci. Bishop Barron on um, uh, the Eucharist called This Is My Body, and it's like $2 a copy and free shipping if you order 20 of them. And it's, it's, it's a wonderful book that really gives a lot of the Catholic view. Uh, or Lou, the yeah, uh, Lou, did you have a question for us? Well, that was it. What, what are the, if he could just state the, the main points of the, the Catholic view of the Eucharist and maybe compare them with other views. Okay. Yeah, sure. So the Catholic view of the Eucharist is that the Eucharist, uh, through the action of the priest, by the power of the Holy Spirit, becomes the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ uh, for two reasons. For two reasons. One is so that the body of Christ might be offered in sacrifice to God. That's why we call the liturgy of the Eucharist the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Mm. 
uh, and the other is so that we might receive Christ sacramentally in Holy Communion, so that the believer who, who eats Christ's flesh and drinks Christ's blood has a, has a real communion in the body and blood of Christ. So that's the fundamental teaching of the Catholic Church. Now, one of the effects of the Eucharist is that through this public rite of worship and this public reception of the sacrament, we are also drawn closer together into one body, and so uh, the one corporate body. Mm-hmm. And so the Eucharist is also the sacrament of the Church's unity, and the Church comes together as a body to celebrate the Eucharist. And there you go. Lou, thank you so much uh, for your call. Glad to hear from you in St. Louis. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Daniel's watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Daniel says, what does the Catholic Church say about angels? Does the Church think that uh, angels have wings? Oh, thanks. So the Church says a lot about angels, and one of the things that it says about them is that they do not have wings. Ah. Uh, because they don't have body parts, uh, because they don't have corporeal bodies, uh, because they are not made of matter. They, okay. are, they are spiritual beings. They are pure spirits. They, they have no matter at all. Uh, and so so it's, a, it's an artistic depiction. It's an artistic depiction. Now, there are instances in sacred scripture when, through the power of God, an angel is permitted by God to assume a corporeal form, okay. but it's a sort of chimera. It's, a, it's, a, it's not a real body. St. Thomas Aquinas thought, for example, that when Abraham met the angels in, what is it, Genesis 18, that uh, well, they wouldn't have had internal organs, for example. Mm. It was more like, you know, an angelophany. We talk about a theophany as when God uh, appears in the guise or in the form of some material object like the burning bush. I mean, God is not a burning bush. Right, but he manifests himself to Moses through a burning bush. In the same way, you can talk of angelophanies when an angel might be present to a person's uh, senses through some uh, vision that the Lord imparts to them. But that's not the essential nature of the angel as such. They don't go back up to heaven with their, you know, flapping their angelic wings. Yeah, Sylvester the cat does when he dies and that's loses right. one of his nine lives, but not that's angels. Right. <laughs> okay, appreciate that, uh, Daniel. Thanks so much for checking in today on YouTube. Our phone number eight three three two eight eight EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, eight three three. Two eight eight three nine eight six. Got a very interesting question here from Madison, who says, "Dear Dr. Anders, I am a 25-year-old dating a Reformed Presbyterian quote or slash Anglican man, and I am doing my best to share my faith with him. His biggest hang-up about, about the Catholic Church is papal infallibility, and specifically how we can know what is an infallible statement and what is not." He often brings up unum sanctum and other papal documents that say there is no salvation outside the Catholic Church and points out how these statements are clearly contradicted in Vatican II. So I was wondering if you could shed some light on the context of some of these documents and speak to the usefulness of the magisterium or the papacy when they cause more apparent confusion than clarity. Thank you so much, Madison. Okay, thanks. I really appreciate the question, and I'll do that. But before I talk about <clears throat> the interpretation of papal statements and the doctrine of infallibility, I'd like to talk about the doctrine of infallibility as it was articulated by John Calvin within the Reformed tradition to which your uh, boyfriend, fiance belongs. Um, one of the assertions of the Reformed tradition is that a man, or a woman for that matter, can have an infallible knowledge of their own election. 
So you will find a doctrine of infallibility within the Reformed tradition. It's not necessarily the infallible interpretation of the Bible, but it's the, in- the infallible interpretation of one's own spiritual state before God. This is, a, this is an article of faith in the Westminster Confession. You can have this infallible certainty. On what grounds? On what grounds? Entirely subjective criteria. Mm. Right? And so I would like to point out that the Reformed don't have a problem with infallibility. They just want it for themselves, <laughs> right? And they don't want to ascribe it to somebody else. Mm. Um, and they want to ascribe it to their own most interior feelings and subjective experiences, not to something objective in the world. Uh, the Catholic doctrine is that the Church is infallible when it teaches the faith and morals of the Church, of the Christian religion, okay. uh, which it doesn't always do, I mean, in an infallible mode. But it, it can, with authority, say this is a... Christian thing that you must believe. This is a Christian thing that you must do. And the the great virtue of having an infallible church is that we are not reduced to interpreting a text. And so this is—Protestants have a hard time getting their head out of the idea that the way you know that the faith is from a text. And so they, they think that what Catholics believe is you have Scripture here— and then you have this collection of texts that have been handed down by papal authority, and the job of the individual Catholic is to somehow align all of these propositions together in a coherent sequence. That's the way Protestants do theology, right? They, 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 their textual basis is the Bible, and the work of theology for a Protestant is trying to fit the diverse statements of Scripture together into a coherent system. A, a, a task, I might add, that they're not always very good at, because... <laughs> That there are so many diverse systems within sure, Protestantism, and they sure. can't come to agreement about it. Right? Mm-hmm. But that's not the task of the Catholic. The, the job of a Catholic is not to line the Bible up together with so many infallible pronouncements of popes and councils and then try to make coherent sense of them and, and make them all fit together. The point of having a, a magisterium is that it's alive. We have a living magisterium, and the magisterium has the job of interpreting the magisterium. And if you didn't get it the first time, they try, try again. I mean, the, 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 the Christological uh, councils of the first four centuries are an ideal example of this. So we had the Council of Nicaea. They said, you know what? Jesus is God. We mean it. Capital G, full stop, exclamation mark, God. Did you hear it? We said it the first time, God. <laughs> not, not, not God, not, some, not a hamburger, not a, not a donut, God. Do you understand what we're saying? And the Catholic world said yes, and then proceeded to not understand what they were saying. Oh, and so then they had the Council of Constantinople, and they said, we really meant it when we said God in Nicaea. Here's how we're going to say it again. That didn't, that didn't take, you know, they had the Council of Ephesus. Uh, then they had the Council of Chalcedon, uh, continually refining and emphasizing the fundamental doctrine that Jesus Christ is God, right? And that's the, and then, you know, to make matters work, they had to do it again at the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, right? Okay. I mean, so they just, you just keep going and keep going and keep going. Uh, the virtue of having a magisterium is it can always clarify what it means. And it, and it definitely looks back to previous Pope's declarations and contextualizes them. And so Unum Sanctum, for example, is within the context of a medieval Christendom in which everybody was uh, Catholic. I mean, you were either a Jew or you were a Catholic. And if you defected from the Catholic faith, you were a heretic. And within that context, it makes perfect sense for Boniface VIII to say, you have to be obedient to the Pope. I mean, if you're a Catholic, yes, you do. Yes, you do, right? But, but what do you do uh, what, So, uh, what do you do 500 years later uh, 
when you have a civilization where people are growing up baptized, but neither they nor their parents nor their grandparents nor their great-grandparents were in communion with the Bishop of Rome and have been taught to believe that the Bishop of Rome is the Antichrist. So you get to the 19th century, Pius IX, who is nobody's idea of a bleeding liberal, <laughs> says people who've been raised in that condition have to be obedient to their consciences, because Catholic Church also says that conscience is where the buck stops. Mm -hmm. right? And so they can be saved through their invincible ignorance of the truth of the Catholic faith. It doesn't undo unum sanctum. It clarifies the context of its application. Okay. Well, uh, and Madison, we hope that's helpful for you and uh, the young man that you are dating. Thank you so much for your uh, email here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Phone lines are open for you at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Jim listening in Minnesota on the Real Presence Radio Network. Hey, Jim, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi, hello. Good afternoon. Howdy. Um, I was just wondering. Uh, I was just wondering about if you can clarify some clarify some information about parish registration and parish territorial boundaries. Because in this in this area, where where I used to where I used to live, well, I still live, but it was your ter your parish was decided by the address that you live in. So the address you live in would determine the parish you you go to by the territory. And when I moved to another location, I asked the diocese here and the parish here about the parish territories and jurisdictions, but they never, the diocese answered and the administrator answered and just said, well, it doesn't really, those, those things really don't apply anymore. It doesn't really matter. You can, you can go wherever you want. So I was just wondering, do parish, do home address and parish territories still matter? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So they matter theologically. They don't matter. They don't matter so much juridically. Right? What I mean by that is that, um, you know, let's say your closest parish is, uh, you know, Saint Joseph's over here, like yeah. it's two miles from your house, mm -hmm. and the next nearest parish is, parish is ten miles away. Well, you're going to fall within that parish's geographic boundaries. Although, in my experience, I don't think anybody at the diocese can actually tell you you know, the latitude and longitude where the, where the boundary changes. Mm. You know, it's more like what is closest to you. I mean, that's, it's more touch and go than that, than that kind of precise definition. Maybe some dioceses have real precise boundaries. I don't think anybody in my diocese could tell you exactly the street where it flips over from one parish to another. But the idea still pertains. The Catholic is not obligated to go to their territorial parish. So why would the concept be an important one? Well, really, from my judgment, the most important thing about the idea of a territorial mm -hmm. parish is not where you have an obligation to go to a mass, but where the pastor of the church has an obligation to direct his pastoral concern. Ah. And so uh, the, the pastor has a jurisdiction and a, and a responsibility not only to the people who come to mass in his church, but even to non-Catholics that live within his territorial boundary. Right, so he's, you know, we, we, there's only one church. Yeah. There's only one church. And so there might be a Christian living in his territorial parish who's not going to the Catholic Mass that doesn't make that soul of no concern to the pastor of that parish. It, that's still a soul that belongs in some sense to the Catholic Church, because there's only one church, mm -hmm. um, you know, who's in need of pastoral care, 
Now, the priest can't obviously provide the same level of pastoral care to somebody like that, but he wouldn't turn someone away, for example, because they weren't a, a tithing member of his territorial parish, and he still ought to have a pastoral solicitude for those that live in that area. Great question, though. Uh, Jim, thank you so much uh, for your call today. Glad to hear from you listening on the great Real Presence Radio. In a moment, we're going to get... We're going to get to more of your phone calls at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this uh, beautiful Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN. Hey, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Let's talk about that here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. We have some uh, lines open right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN radio family, Divine Mercy Broadcasting. That's in Washington State. They're celebrating their 10th year with EWTN today, serving Washington State with six FM stations in English and Spanish. How about that? Congratulations to Joe Haberman and our friends at Divine Mercy Broadcasting from all of us here at EWTN Radio. Our phone number again, 833 833- 233-288-EWTN if you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Regina, writing to us, says, in the book The Lives of the Saints, it says that St. John the Baptist was born free of original sin. I mentioned this statement at my faith group, and they all resisted the idea. No one was inclined to believe it. Of course, we understand that being born is different than being conceived, but they were all only they were sure that only our blessed mother was free of original sin since it is written in the book the lives of the saints can we take that statement as true thanks i await your response regina right so the catholic position here is that saint john the baptist was purified from sin while in the womb but not conceived without original sin which oh. is a dignity afforded only to the blessed virgin mary Okay, that clears that up. Uh, Regina, thank you so much uh, for your email. Here's one now from CL. Hi there, Dr. Anders. I was received into the church two years ago. My question is, when and why did Protestants stop believing in purgatory? Um, Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So Protestants, uh, the rejection of the doctrine of purgatory was essential to Protestantism from the very beginning. So, I mean, as early as 1517, uh, in Luther's 95 Theses, he doesn't come right out and deny the doctrine of purgatory, uh, but he argues in a way that would make purgatory irrelevant. And um, interestingly, you know, I've often made the claim that Luther was a neurotic person who who suffered a lot psychologically. Mm -hmm. One of the 95 Theses is something along the lines of, this is a paraphrase, something along the lines of, um, purgatory is unnecessary because Christian life is a living hell as it is, <laughs> right? I mean, that's, that's basically the sentiment that it's he expressed, funny, you know? Funny. Um, and funny. Uh, but it was, they rejected it for a number of reasons. The, the, the fundamental reason, the underlying reason they rejected the doctrine of purgatory is that purgatory um, trades on the idea of merit, right? That, that we can contribute something to our eternal glory or we can detract from it. And the fundamental doctrine of Protestantism is that the soul is uh, justified, that is to say, declared righteous by God in virtue of faith alone for Jesus' sake. And so anything that would smack of merit uh, or the necessity of, you know, attaining some kind of interior purity in order to see have the vision of God, 
that's uh, that's anathema to to Protestant soteriology, the doctrine mm. of salvation. Okay. Um, they also took aim at purgatory because they they didn't they didn't find it in the books of the Bible that they liked. Right now, they did find it in some biblical books that they didn't like. Yeah. And so they resolved that conflict by throwing out those biblical books. If the biblical books said stuff they didn't like, they got rid of them. If they if it said stuff they liked, they kept them. And so wow. they, they threw out seven books of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Luther was uh, contemplating throwing out some New Testament books, too, that he didn't like. He really didn't like James and said in one place that he, he wouldn't have James in his Bible. He, he was not real fond of the book of Revelation and a few of the other texts of the New Testament as well. Now, he quoted them. Uh, he cited them, he theologized out of them, but he mm-hmm. also said nasty things about them. Wow. Well, there you go. Thank you so much uh, for your email. Back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Matt in Cleveland listening on the EWTN app. Hey there, Matt. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi, Mr. Uh, hi, guys. You're my favorite uh, show of the day listening to uh, you. Thank you. My question is this. I'm 66 years old, and I've only uh, become aware of this recently. I was under the impression that if I go to confession and confess all my sins and I do my earthly penance, Mm -hmm. whatever it is, 10 Hail Marys, or I've got to do a pilgrimage, my sins are forgiven. But I've come to uh, hear that my earthly penance is done, but I could still do time in purgatory. So let's say if I fight with my wife, or you know, uh, you know, clip somebody, you know, uh, I, I don't know, commit some theft or something that I don't, you know, like stealing towels from a hotel or something, I can still be punished in purgatory, even though I've done my penance and confessed my sins in this world. Um, yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. And, um, you know, and, and I hope that most of us have nothing worse to answer for than an occasional fight with our wives or, you know, <laughs> p- palming some towels out of, <laughs> out of a hotel. Yeah. You know, that, that'd be, I mean, there are, there are a lot worse things in the world than that. Oh, you know? yes. Those would definitely fall into the venial sin category. Mm, yeah. um, but uh, uh, with respect to the doctrine of purgatory, it is possible that a soul could uh, go to confession, do their penance, and and be released from all temporal punishment due to sin. And mm. that's what we all would hope for. That's what we all aim for. Um, it's also possible that there could be some uh, some temporal punishment uh, remaining or some purification that we needed to accomplish. And that's why, you know, just because somebody receives the last rites of the Church, which would include confession and penance— um, uh, absolution and so forth, uh, we, you're still going to say a, a requiem mass for the repose of their soul, right? You know, yeah. you don't, you don't. We never presume this individual. I know for sure that they're going to heaven, no matter no matter what rights they underwent in this mm-hmm. life. We don't conclude from that that we know for a fact that they're saved. Nor do we conclude that about ourselves. Okay. Appreciate your call, Matt. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Lines are still open. If you call right now, you can hopefully get on today's program. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Our listener, Louisa, has been doing some heavy reading. Uh, She has been reading uh, stuff from the International Theological Commission. And she says, Dear Dr. Anders, I have read the article the reciprocity between faith and sacraments in the sacramental economy. 
That's the title of it. I was wondering when the church starts seeing marriage as a sacrament and if you could tell me where I can find out more about it in the church fathers. I would also like to know why the church uses the term economy to talk about the sacraments. Best wishes, Louisa. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Uh, good text that uh, from the International Theological Commission, more recent one. Okay. Um, the doctrine on marriage as a sacrament is is fully worked out in the Middle Ages. This is a this is a doctrine that the scholastic theologians of the High Middle Ages really perfected. Um, and uh, there was there was debate uh, throughout the Church about the exact number of the sacraments um, that got definitively worked out in the in the scholastic era so we're okay. talking you know from say the 12th century to the to the 15th um, now can you read about the sacrament of matrimony and the fathers yes and one text that comes to mind would be augustine of hippo his book on the good of marriage on the good of marriage uh, would be one to to do now in terms of the, the word economy here doesn't have a uh, pecuniary connotation. It's more like in the sense of home economics, like the the organization and administration of, and not necessarily uh, monetary. Ah, okay, very good. And thanks so much uh, for your question. Uh, Dylan is watching us on Facebook this afternoon. Dylan says, in the spirit of Christ working outside of his sacraments, is it possible for a layman to receive the Eucharist in an extraordinary way? Yeah, thanks. So there are anecdotes uh, of private revelation, mm-hmm. and you know we take those with a grain of salt, or maybe with a dash of holy water. Okay. <laughs> um, private revelations in which individual saints have claimed to have experienced a, uh, a, a a vision of Christ in which He administered Holy Communion to them directly. Right. So that mm-hmm. you you will find that from time to time in the tradition. Uh, or something like that. You know, some monk is out in the desert and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, some angel appears and delivers Holy Communion to him or something like that. So can I, do we, do we, are you obligated to believe that such things happen? No, you're not obligated to believe that. These are private revelations. Um, are, are you, do you have to deny them? No, you don't have to do that either. I'm just raising to you the fact that that is a, you know, that's a that's an intellectual possibility. Okay. Uh, but the normal mode of reception of Holy Communion, I mean, this is the sacrament of the Church's unity, and it's it's intimately connected to our communion with the bishop and with the local church. And so uh, we shouldn't we, we shouldn't really desire to receive the Eucharist uh, uh, ordinarily yeah. in an extraordinary way. Okay. Very good, uh, Dylan. Thanks for watching us on Facebook this afternoon. Here's a question now from Marlon. And Marlon says, Dr. Anders, uh, thanks for all you have done and are doing to form us all in our faith. Could you please elaborate a little deeper on this from the Catechism? And this is from paragraph 510. Here's the, uh, here's the paragraph. Mary remained a virgin in conceiving her son, a virgin in giving birth to him, a virgin in carrying him, a virgin in nursing him at her breast, always a virgin. Quote there from St. Augustine. With her whole being, she is the handmaid of the Lord. And, of course, that's from Luke. So does this mean that Jesus did not pass through the birth canal? Or he passed by, but the power of the Holy Spirit, there was no damage to Our Lady's body. Your input greatly appreciated. And, again, that's from Marlon. Um, Yes. So the doctrine of the Church is that the birth of Christ was a miraculous birth, not just a miraculous conception. And he, he passed through the Blessed Virgin's body, 
in such a way that no damage happened to her physical organs. Uh, actually, we had a caller. Do you remember this, Tom? About two or three weeks ago, we had a, a caller from the Northeast, I think, who shared an anecdote about her grandmother who compared it. Didn't she compare it to, like, light passing through yes. uh, glass? And I thought yes. that was a great, a great analogy. Really neat stuff there. Hey, Marlon, thank you so much uh, for your email. It's called Communion here on EWTN. Be sure to join us tonight for Catholic Answers Live at 6 p.m. Eastern, two hours of the wise of Catholic beliefs with staff apologist Carlo Broussard. Also, Carlo will answer your questions about Catholicism. A lot of what we do on this program. Check it out tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern, only on EWTN, the exclusive radio home for Catholic Answers Live. All right, let's go now to uh, Carolyn on Long Island, listening to us on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Hey, Carolyn, what's on your mind today? Oh, hello. How are you? I'm sorry. I'm driving right now, so I hope I'm clear. Yes, you are. So my question is, I am a Catholic. My sister is a Baptist. And we just we just don't really agree that much anymore, so we just don't talk about it. Like, she doesn't believe in the saints anymore, all the things we grew up believing. But she believes that only Christians will go to heaven. Like, she does not think Jewish people, Muslim people, she doesn't believe anyone else will go to heaven. I personally do believe that other people go to heaven. I don't think it's up to us. I believe it's up to God. But I was just wondering your thoughts. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So the Catholic Church is very clear about mm. this. This is a doctrine of the Catholic faith that you actually don't have to be a card-carrying Catholic to be saved through the Catholic Church. Everyone who goes to heaven is saved through the Catholic Church, but they can be sa- they can be saved in ignorance of the Catholic Church that's saving them. Right. So ah. Christ's grace transforms a person and brings them to himself. Mm-hmm. That grace is administered through the Church. Uh, that can happen to a person without their knowing about it, basically. And so it's possible for someone outside the formal boundaries of Catholicism to go to heaven. Now, uh, the Protestants don't believe that by and large. Most of them don't believe that by and large because they don't think that the way you get to heaven is by the transformation of your moral life. See, that's the Catholic position. The way you go to heaven is by the transformation of your moral life. Faith is the the beginning of that process. It's it's one of the means that transforms us. Like if you believe that Christ is the Son of God, for example, then you're going to want to obey his teaching and follow his example mm-hmm. and enter the church that he founded. So faith is necessary, but it's not sufficient um, because what ultimately has to happen for you to go to heaven is that your moral life has been transformed. Now, most Protestants believe that the way you get to heaven is through an act of explicit faith in Christ formulated the way they think it ought to be formulated. And so by definition, someone who, who hasn't made that act of intentional faith can't be saved because salvation just means God forgiving your sins on account of your faith. Mm. Uh, and so that's why many folks like Baptists think unless you hold the Christian faith in the way that a Baptist holds it, they think, well, there's, there's just nothing else it could mean to be saved. Certainly not the transformation of one's moral life. So it doesn't matter how good Mother Teresa is if she doesn't profess the faith the way a Baptist does— then, uh, then she wouldn't be saved. I used to go to a Protestant college before I was Catholic, and I could remember once, this true story, a lively debate among the college students about whether or not Mother Teresa was, quote-unquote, a Christian, meaning would she go to heaven when she died? That's the way they used the term. And, uh, and the, you know, the vast majority took the position, oh, no, it doesn't matter how good she is, goodness has nothing to do with it. She doesn't have the right kind of faith, and therefore she won't be saved. And, wow. You know, I was, uh, I was in that camp. I was an evangelical Protestant. But, you know, coming— it's one thing to declare in the abstract, yeah, Catholics don't go to heaven. 
It's another thing to stare Mother Teresa in the face and say that she deserves eternal torment, mm-hmm. but just because she didn't confess the faith the way my parents did. Uh, it, that began the unraveling of my Protestantism, my, my eventual conversion to Catholicism. I, I liked a world where Mother Teresa got to go to heaven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Carolyn, is that helpful for you? It's very helpful, because I do believe everyone goes to heaven. It's really upsetting. <laughs> well, it is upsetting. It is upsetting. that The origins of that doctrine are in Calvinism. John Calvin, a Protestant reformer from the 16th century, lived between 1509 and 1564. And uh, the, the, the essential part of Calvinism was that Calvin believed that, uh, that God predestined a small minority of people to go to heaven and the vast majority of people to go to hell, and that we could know the difference between those two groups in this life. And Calvin was sure that he and his set were in the going to heaven group, and that mm. the people who disagreed with him were in the, 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 the not going to heaven group. And differentiating those two groups became a matter of utmost importance for both ecclesiastical and civil affairs. And so you've heard of Puritanism. The Puritans in New England carried that doctrine over here, and they brought the idea that in order to serve in, even in civil government, let alone church affairs, a person had to be able to give an account of their election, had to be able to prove that they were predestined by God to go to heaven. And one of the ways they sought to do that was, well, you had to conform to a strict mode of life, uh, only the elect would live that way, and, and so the, the bad rap that Puritanism got, you know, Puritanical has become a byword in colloquial mm. American English, flows out of this idea that uh, that we should differentiate the elect and the reprobate in this life and draw distinctions, and that that could even have, uh, say, civil consequences. Wow. Hey, Carolyn, thanks so much for your call. We're going from Carolyn on Long Island to Carolyn in St. Louis, listening on the Great Covenant Network. Hello, Karen. What's on your, uh, Carolyn, what's on your mind today? My question is this, when, when uh, tradition can be spelled with a capital T or a small t, the low letter case, uh, small t, uh, and would you please, please uh, put a definition to these? What's the difference between capital T and small T? Sure, sure. So when people use that distinction, when they say, well, I'm talking about capital T tradition, not small T tradition. When they talk about capital T tradition, they're talking about uh, truths and practices of the faith that were handed down to us by Christ and the apostles and are not optional. Okay. And so the premier example of this kind of tradition would be the liturgy of the Catholic Church, the, the sacraments and the Mass, for example. Uh, that's that's an aspect of big T tradition that if you're Catholic, you do those things. <clears throat> Small T tradition would be um, embellishments of the faith that have grown up in you know different cultural contexts that might be dear to people in a particular community, but are not universal mm-hmm. aspects of the faith, and we could dispense with uh, without anything essential being lost. And you know something like uh, Saint Joseph's altar on St. Joseph's Day, when, you know, Italian parishes will get together and throw a massive feast and bring food out and give some to the poor, and, and uh, you can go have your fill of Italian food. I, I, you know, You're I'm not, missing it. You're I, missing it, man. I'm, I'm not. I, I didn't—well, <laughs> you know, I, the first St. Joseph's altar—well, I'm, uh, I'm not Italian, but I went to my first one at, uh, at, a, at a parish here in yes, Birmingham, and yes. I was like, okay, I'm, can, we, can we do this, and can we get the priest afterwards to confess gluttony? I mean, this looks pretty good stuff. <laughs> It is quite a spread, I must say. Carolyn, thanks so much uh, for your call. Jack is listening in Michigan on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hello, Jack. What's on your mind today, sir? Yes. Thank you for taking my call. My question is, um, the I guess the purpose for the final judgment, um, other than reuniting the body to the soul, if at the particular judgment we're already made aware of whether we're going to heaven or hell or not, 
So I, I just would like to clear that up and maybe find out more about making the distinction between the two. Yeah, sure. Thanks. So on the way to EWTN today, right when I was getting ready to leave the office to come over here, I got an email from uh, my fourth child's university okay. saying that he had been named to the dean's list. So wow. I'm very proud of him for being Yay. named to the dean's list. Um, and, uh, and the criteria were that you have a GPA above a certain level. Mm-hmm. Right? We all knew what his GPA was, you know, six weeks ago sure. when we got the report card. Sure, sure. Right? So uh, there was nothing substantive added. Right? This was simply a public declaration of what we already knew privately. Mm. Um, you know, the, when, when, uh, when you graduate from high school, somebody gets to be the valedictorian. All the kids know who the valedictorian is going to be before you get there. You no. know who the smarty pants is that has the highest GPA. <laughs> but this is an occasion to celebrate that person and their accomplishments and to honor them for what they've done. <clears throat> and the same logic pertains to the particular and the final judgment. So you receive the judgment in your soul immediately at death. But the whole world gets it at the general judgment, and so you and Christ <coughs> can be vindicated in the face of the whole world. And think about how appropriate that would be, for example, to the uh, second-century martyrs, uh, those that uh, the Romans say threw to the lions to be eaten alive while the crowds mocked and jeered them. And those same crowds will see um, as those people come forward to receive their eternal reward, and Christ will look at those that mocked and jeered at them and may have a different verdict. And um, I don't know if it will involve lions. Probably won't. No, probably not. Jack, we appreciate your call. Thanks for checking in today. Here it's uh, Call to Communion on EWTN Radio. Mm-hmm. Vincent has an interesting question. He says, I have heard Catholic apologists, including you, Dr. Anders, say that the temple in Ezekiel is a metaphor. A metaphor for what is very unclear. I have read the Bible many times in Hebrew, Aramaic, Aramaic Greek, and Latin. And nowhere does Ezekiel 40 through 48 hint at being metaphorical. Indeed, Ezekiel himself was given a measuring rod by the angel and told to physically measure the temple and its precincts. So I ask you, since when is a metaphor physically measured? What say you? Yeah, thanks. So that's the way you are reading Scripture. That is the way that fundamentalists read Scripture. I'm not suggesting you're a fundamentalist. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. I don't know. Uh, but it's those kinds of considerations that lead, uh, say, dispensational Baptists, for example, to imagine that at the end of time, Jesus is going to come back with a measuring rod and a bunch of rocks and build a temple, all right? or that one will get built rather before he returns. Mm-hmm. And they think, well, it, obviously, there's got to be a physical temple. Um, the New Testament, however, uh, takes passages that on the face of it seem to imply one straightforward reading and says that's not the right way to read them. Right, so I'll give you an example. Uh, St. Uh, Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 3, that Noah's Ark is a type or an allegory for Christian baptism. Well, go back and look at Genesis 6 to 9 and tell me where it says there this is an allegory for Christian baptism. It doesn't say it in the text. St. Paul looks at the story of Sarah and Hagar and says, well, this is obviously an allegory uh, for those who are children according to the flesh and those who are children according to the Spirit. The text doesn't say that. But Paul says that's what it means. That's what it means. Okay. Uh, he says that the rock from which the Israelites drew water in the Old Testament was Christ. And so that we drink from the same spiritual rock as the Israelites, presumably by our, our, our communion with the Holy Spirit. Well, it doesn't say that in the Pentateuch, right? 
And so, and Christ does the same thing. So the, the New Testament and the Catholic way of reading the Old is that the Old Testament, sometimes the Old Testament speaks in types and figures, even perhaps when its sacred authors didn't know that's what they were doing. And the New Testament does say that the prophets of old uh, yearned to discover what the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when, he, when they predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. They didn't know. These are things, St. Paul says, that even angels long to look into. Mm-hmm. So the question of how to interpret the Old Testament is a thorny one in Catholic tradition. It's not a straightforward, easy thing to do. Um, if you look at Pope Benedict's apostolic exhortation, Verbum Domini, for example, he actually makes the claim that it's basically biblical interpretation is not for the faint of heart. It does require some expertise and a familiarity with Catholic tradition. All right. Vincent, thanks so much uh, for your email. We're going to close with this one from Tom. Uh, Tom says, like at the uh, scripture Matthew 9, scripture gives the impression that demonic influence or possession is a fairly normal occurrence. Has this behavior diminished in time? Was the first century view of influence or possession different than ours? And do we in modern times not see the face of evil in those around us? Your thoughts, please. Um, yes, I, I completely agree with you about your interpretation of Christian history. If you read Evagrius Ponticus, a 4th century Egyptian uh, uh, monastic theologian, you would walk away with the idea that every untoward thought is the direct result of demonic influence. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the way Evagrius talks. If you read St. Thomas Aquinas, you get a more nuanced view where our own passions and our own animal nature can prompt us to immoderate acts, and those can be exacerbated, if you will, uh, by, uh, by demonic influence as well. Uh, and then I think it's probably more common today among Catholics to hold that demonic influence is, a, in comparison to Evagrius or Aquinas, a probably more rare phenomenon as we have a better understanding of, uh, of uh, uh, things like neuroscience and the psychology of, of human desire. It doesn't mean we deny the existence of the demonic. It's, it's a dogma of the faith that the sure. thing exists. But, you know, faith is also allowed to develop in concert with, with natural knowledge. Tom, thanks so much uh, for your email. That's uh, going to wrap things up for us. Dr. David Anders, thank you. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday right here on EWTN Radio, 2 p.m. Eastern for our live broadcast, 11 p.m. for the Encore, uh, and that's uh, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. Check out the podcast anytime you wish. It is on demand at EWTNRadio.net. On behalf of our fantastic team here, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Hey, thanks for joining us. Hope to see you on tomorrow, Thursday's edition of Call to Communion. Until then, God bless.